Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we go from minutes zero to seven, which begin with the gun barrel logo and end with Kronstein tearing up a secret message. In between, we get a phony Bond being stalked by Red Grant in the sculpture garden, titles projected over undulating bodies, and a very tense chess tournament match. And our guest today is the author of Catching Bullets, a wonderful combination of fan memoir and critical reassessment of Bond films, the one and only Mr. Mark O'Connell. Welcome, Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. Thank you for having me. Good to chat. So I love your book. Thank you. I had my eyes opened on uh, several fronts, even though this may mean getting into the weeds with another movie. But Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, you know, you allowed me to see Diamonds Are Forever as not the last Connery movie, but instead the first of, of of a new era okay probably because of tom mankowitz uh-huh. but like it totally shifted the way that i saw it and now i see it as very much a part of the roger moore movies not a part of the early sean connery movies. oh yes def- oh, definitely well yeah no thank you thank you for uh, your kind thoughts there on the book um oh i'm a big diamonds are forever fan i always have been though. all the bond films i like everyone thinks you're just being devious now because opinion has changed i'm like no not at all i've, I've always liked diamonds are forever i I find it, as I I say in the book, I find it one of the most sadistic, nastiest, most Fleming of Bond movies. There's a a real sadism to it. Uh, And I I just love it for that. And you're right, though, Tom Mankiewicz, who's kind of gave Bond such a a voice through the 70s. I mean, his fingerprints were on Bond films later than, you know, his names were credited for. Uh, And yeah, he he shifted the tone of Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. And I, I... you know, I think it's what took uh, more right through, actually, all the way through to 1985. That was the first one that I saw in a theater, although I had seen the other ones at drive-ins on double bills. But I remember that was the first one that I walked into a theater. Mm. And um, and the, my temperature, even as a little kid, sort of went up when I saw mm. Jill St. John's hips. I don't know what was going on there, but something was happening. Well, alternatively, I had a weird moment, and it wasn't really an inspiring moment. But I remember finding... Cause I, uh, when they used to do TV broadcasts of the movies, Diamonds Are Forever would be on ITV, which was our main, or still is our main commercial channel here in the UK. And they had a slightly odd uh, print of it because they used to pan and scan where they would just chop and change. You'd rarely have it beautifully widescreen like we would have now. And they, there was this version where Connery's uh, about to get into bed with Jules and John and he's hooking his um, clothes on, on a hook. And you're like, oh my god, I can I can see I can see Connery Thatch here. That, wow, that they've really sunk. It's like, <laughs> my god, put the put the black bars in quick because that would happen. Yeah, that would happen a lot. And I, that's almost one of my burnt in memories. Not not a good one either. Not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's wearing sort of bikini briefs too. He's not wearing boxer shorts or anything like that. Oh, there's a great still. I saw it again recently. It's easy to find. It was like a behind the scenes official still of Jules and John and Connery, and they're just relaxing in between takes of that very scene. And he has got this sort of skin-coloured, skimpy, almost thong-type uh, thing on. But that's kind of the norm. I hate to ruin it for folks, but there's, there's usually they're usually called a pouch, I think, or a mouse pouch. Um, and it's it's the day everyone dreads on set, including the actors. I should also, I guess we should say, you, you should tell us about your personal connection to Eon for those of, of the listeners who don't know about this. Yes, I, I actually often forget to bring this in. Well, it... Bond was in my family, well, 15 years almost before I was, because my grandfather in the late 50s, he was a war veteran. He had leg shrapnel. He was advised by the Army Medical Board, find a job sitting down. And he loved cars and he loved cars perhaps he couldn't afford, but others could. And he started to become a chauffeur in the late 50s. There was a there was a growing industry around Mayfair, media industry of sort of Anglo-American filmmakers and, and producers and he got a job with Cubby in the late 50s, just as Cubby was ending his Warwick film days. 
And my grandfather stayed with Cubby, well, for at least 30-odd years, um, driving him, babysitting, house-sitting, doing errands, taking actors away, <laughs> you know, when it wasn't, get him away, get him away, um, at, you know, doing the airport run. So, yeah, so Bond was always there. And I, as a sort of eight- or nine-year-old, I would hear these names, Pierce and Brosnan and Barbara and Paris and McNee. And I was like, what is this? And it was just around the time in 85 as um, Vuta Kill was prepping and beginning to come into being. And I just got obsessed by it. And that was so Octopussy was always my first Bond film, which I really didn't want to see and love that as well. But Vuta Kill was the first one I anticipated. And um, yeah, so I've sort of had a nice, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the, the Broccoli's have been good with the O'Connells and vice versa. And Barbara did do a forward for the book, which was lovely. Um, and very unexpected. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a very sort of blessed um, relationship. Can, can I ask what year you were born? I was born. Thank you for not knowing. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I was nineteen seventy-five. Yeah. Seventy-five. Yes. Yeah, John, what year were you, were you born? It's right at the end of seventy-four. Okay, I thought you guys were pretty close in the same. Yeah, age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was the latter half of seventy-five. That's why I look younger. Um, which, which is the line Fred Leibovitz used last night and something, so I'm going to use that one myself. So. I think the other thing is interesting is that both of you had sort of unusual video rental places, right? Yeah. Yeah, mine was the local uh, garage, literally the, the local gas station. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I would go there, and it uh, and they had this little corner. I can still see it now. It had this little plastic carousel of films. I can see all the titles. Ten, starring Bo Derek, Never Say Never Again, Octopussy, um uh house three uh leonard part six <laughs> trail of the pink panther none of the others the trail of the pink panther um oh. and like lace which was this mini sort of glamorous mini series yeah yeah i can see it i told you i can see it now um and, and one <laughs> copy, brilliant one copy of octopussy one copy of the empire strikes back um and i remember just going there with all my sort of week pocket money or allowance on a saturday my mum would always buy wine. They would, it's where she would get her sort of, you know, alcohol from. Sorry, mum. And um, and I, I remember she'd buy this bottle called Blue Nun, which I always thought was really expensive. And it's like it's still sold in garages, but often like put on the floor near the door. So it's that kind of wine. It's not very good. We wine. know Blue Nun. There's Blue Nun here in the United Blue States. Blue Nun and Black Tower. <laughs> and for years, I'm I'm nearly embarrassed myself at very posh events. Going, let's get Black Tower because this is a posh event. It turns out it wasn't posh at all. But I would always get my Bond <laughs> films and I would get Octopussy nearly every Saturday for many, many weeks. Um, and, you know, I probably paid for half that budget in local sort of gas station <laughs> rental fees and always got it back um, in the morning because the proviso was, yeah, my mum didn't really want the job of driving me to take it back. But I said, if it's on the way back from church, and if I go to church, is this a deal? So that's how I would sort of, you know. Well done. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. I would sort of barter and negotiate my Bond fandom. But yeah, so where was your video store? Where was where was your strange one? Well, I had two, but one of them was in the grocery store. Uh-huh. So what had happened was the grocery store owner's son went off to college and went to, not exactly film school, but took a lot of film classes, came back and begged his parents to let him open the corner of the store as a video store. Oh. That man was a huge influence on me as a child. And then another place, which was basically like a convenience store gas station, owned by this elderly couple who decided the only movies that were really important were basically everything you see on TCM now. Mm, so mm. like 90% classic Hollywood, which was then, I also you know grew up going to church, and that would often be part of the deal yeah. as well. And, uh, and that was always allowed oh well of course we can rent this humphrey bogart film because there's nothing uh unseemly in that we know there's not a rating system we have to deal with so that was mine but bond wise it was tv i was just thinking how lucky you were not to have the commercials oh we did my dad no we, no, we uh, did we did icv which was more or less yeah they've from russia with love aptly rather aptly was on bbc one or bbc two about 10, 15 years ago as part of a British Hollywood season. And that was really strange, not having ads on TV. And we all watched mm -hmm. it just to say we could see it on the main sort of, you know, the British channel, BBC. But no, always ads on ITV. And even when I watch the Blu-rays of Bond now, I still can kind of remember where the, the, the pause moment was. Because I don't know about you guys, but I would have to sort of, 
we'd punch out all the commercials, which I kind of wish I'd recorded and kept now, because the tapes we had would often not be long enough for, for like a whole Bond movie, like the two-hour tapes. You have to keep punching out the commercials. So, yeah, it was very much a commercial Bond experience, yes. I remember the words edited for television underneath the chateau at the beginning of Thunderball because I had taped it off of television. And, and that every time I see Thunderball, those in my imagination, those words appear <laughs> underneath it. Oh, do they take out the extra three hours and make it a bit faster? No, no. no. <laughs> no. Oh, I know. No such, no such luck. Do you know they, they the other weird thing was that Honor Majesty's Secret Service, when it first premiered on American television, was stretched over two nights and they re-edited mm. the movie. And I've it heard It starts this. with the ski chase and it's so bizarre, but that's how I saw it the first time. And that's still, I can't quite get that weird version of it out of my head yeah i mean i as the as, as i say in the book a lot i saw them saw these movies so out of order you know i, I came in with the octopusy then didn't see anything for two years until view to a kill came out and then christmas of 85 moonraker was on following the queen's speech which was quite a big slot it was the second time it had been broadcast and then i, I, I the book outlines it uh, better than my memory does but the order of the films was just random like live and let die thunderball for your eyes only and then it was almost disappointing when I caught up with them all. The last one I saw out of sync was The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and often when people say, oh, should I go back to Doctor No and watch them in order? I'm like, well, you don't have to. That's why that's what I think the glory of them is. You don't have to because um, they more or less don't work like that. And they're not it's not Game of Thrones. Not yet. Anyway. I loved the fact that you went out of order in your book. It was really exciting to guess or wonder what was going to come next. And it did just give a completely fresh perspective to mm. it. I just thought it was great. Yeah, well, it was the only way I could do it. I mean, I had to do a little bit. There's a few gaps where, like, I don't remember what Bond film I saw next. But guess what? There's always some geeks and TV movie geeks that have put the, t you know, the TV magazine listings online. I was able to sort of detect it and piece it together. And or, or I remembered that I remember I do remember uh, uh, Bank Holiday, which is like a, a sort of Labor Day public uh, holiday in Britain. Bank Holiday Easter Monday, I believe, 86 from Russia of Love was on. And I remember taping that. Although the weirdness of why I'm here today is I vaguely remember I was a bit late. So never saw the pre-title sequence for quite a while. Um, and that happened a lot. I think that happened with Diamonds as well. I'm like, oh, there's a pre-title sequence I didn't know existed. Because you were so tied to the TV broadcast. You know, you I, I, without sounding like an old man, you know, shouting at clouds and throwing stones at cars like you you just didn't have the netflix or even like the youtube options where you know if i fancy a pre-title sequence or just to hear some music I'll, i use youtube like a bond jukebox but you didn't have that you would be at the mercy of, of broadcasters and their like you say and their edited tricks and their slight paranoias there was you know there was always little bits cut out and then when you watched when you bought them on vhs or blu-ray dvd and their various sort of evolutions there was always a scene or a beat or a frame that i i hadn't seen that before you know like the the widescreenness of you only live twice i'd never really seen until i think the vhs's came out and they would deliberately widescreen they you know it was another reason to sort of get us all to buy them again mitch did i tell the story on here before about my friends and i watching every cold open consecutively one night on no. vhs <laughs> We were. I'll just say this: we were very high. Okay. And my and my friend's dad had all of them, and I was like, "Let's let's just watch the beginnings. The beginnings of these movies are so great. You know, we're like teenagers, and we sat down and actually put in the tape. Would watch the cold open. As soon as the theme would hit, we'd pull it out and put in the other one. <laughs> and it was not obvious from from. I don't even think we did from Rush with Love. I think we went Goldfinger through Octopussy, and <laughs> that was where we were at the time. It was it was an interesting experience, and I think we all decided Octopussy was the best at the time. Absolutely, I absolutely. I, I want... It's a great cold open. Oh, uh, it never tops. I don't I don't know that it ever tops that jet. I mean, that's just amazing yeah, that sequence. Yeah, someone should mash them up and cut them together and try and make a film. I, I feel we're going to get to a point where people will make films out of other films, almost in a Z League recuts movie movie type way. And I, I sort of think, you know. Try and make a Bond film out of the pre-title sequence. So, someone can do it. Mm. It'll be a big job and um, probably very I'm, illegal. I'm still going, at some point, I'm still going to do a fan cut of The Living Daylights and eliminate Brad Whitaker from the movie. Because I, I think that 
I think it's a better movie if that could be done. I'm going to experiment and see if that's possible. Well, controversial, controversial. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think you would do your your supercut and end it with this one. You could end. You could end oh, your end title the or your movie. Of free titles Just with Bond. Kill, kill yeah. Bond, and you're out. There you go. This was the first Connery Bond film that you saw, right, Mark? Um, I've got, I'm just going back to my book here, looking at the order of, uh, yes, oh gosh, well done, yes, yes. It was a while ago when I wrote it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, because it followed Moonraker, Christmas Day Moonraker, from Russia of Love. Yes, so you, gosh, yes. And I don't think it's a bad intro. I didn't see Doctor No for a while. Again, they were, they were also broadcast out of sequence, as well as we watching them out of sequence. Um, yeah, and once I eventually saw the pre-title sequence, I... I actually think it's the best pre-title sequence possibly of any film. I mean, I love later Bond title sequences, Union Jack, Parachute, um, I, 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 Octopus, If You To Kill, all of the obvious um, pre-title uh, boys. But I, there's something, I think it's a friend of mine, Mark Gatiss, he's a writer and actor, and he, um, he said recently, uh, I, I did a thing for Yahoo Movies where I was sort of asking various people who they felt you know, the top best Bond films were. And he made a really interesting point about um, From Russia With Love, which he kind of said was his favourite or his best. And he said that it's it's unhindered and unattached to that idea of franchise. And I thought he's so right. It's kind of operating away from a franchise. I actually think Doctor No tries to pretend to be a franchise more. It's pretending we've... It suggests we've missed three or four Bond missions already and that he's been in the role for a while. Um, yeah. And from Rush with Love, there's just it's I think it's a great purity to it as a film. It's it's the first time in Bond where we see that real nine to five surveillance spy world of Bond. Whereas perhaps Doctor No, there was a little bit of yes, he was at work, but he was you know he was in shorts, he was in Jamaica. There's a little bit of vacation relaxation about it, but there's a there's a sort of real Cold War panic and fever about from Rush with Love, and it starts in the, in you know in the pre-title sequence. And I, I definitely think when those John Barry notes, you know, that kick in over the opening titles, it's like a machine gun. The pace of it. I was just looking at it again recently. I thought the pace of it is amazing. And it ha you know, has this slow uh, pre-title movement that I just think has possibly the tone of it has rarely been surpassed. And you make the point that it's the last 50s Bond film, which I think is, is a really good observation mm. that by the time Beatles joke notwithstanding by the time we get to Goldfinger we're in the 60s and there's something that is very 50s still feeling about this yes absolutely I mean every decade whether it's a, whether it's a real decade or it's a movie decade takes a, maybe even five years but it takes a while just to find its rhythms and, and, it, and what makes it that decade and, and yeah you're, you're right I think uh, Dr. Noam from Russia of Love are very much part of they're still very future-minded. They're, you know, trying to appeal to the kids and, and not maybe, you know, the viewers of World War Two war movies like our parents' generation, perhaps. But it is still, it's perhaps a Kennedy-era futurism, which, you know, didn't sadly last longer than From Russia of Love uh, release year. So it has that, you know, the sort of 50s hemlines, and it's all very British in that 50s way, which I think Goldfinger just knocks out Part. we know it does i mean goldfinger comes in there's a i think the first thing that goldfinger does is it it brings a sense of movement to bond literally the camera's moving and chasing him the sets are moving the, the car is moving the, the score is moving and you could say that about of course you can say that about dr Lerman from mushroom love but they feel they're still slightly um aj chowdhury another friend who wrote um some kind of hero a great great bond history and biography he um he often says that Doctor No and From Russia with Love are they're like the last two Warwick films before Eon and Bond really kicks in and I think you could argue that. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that even even the ghost of World War II kind of gets put to rest with the the gold bar in Goldfinger that mm. gets dropped you know in front of uh, the golf course and it's almost like World War II is now distant past yes. whereas there's something about you know these first two and probably because terence young was a tanker in the war and Ber berkeley mather led led troops in the war there the war haunts the first two in a way that um that will not happen again and then and now that we get to where we are now we don't even want to ask what james bond's military service was because it's going to place him in the falklands or afghanistan or something and we don't even want to think about that oh yeah i mean it's like yeah bonds are, you know he's always a weird bubble of time you know his history was 10 years ago and his future's five minutes to go you know it's 
five minutes of time. It's always, yeah, and, and you can't question it. Yeah, I've often thought that. Well, if Daniel Craig, because everyone says, and I agree, let's get Daniel Craig in a naval uniform. And I'm like, well, what was his, what was his mission? Sort of, you know, shipping speakers to Coachella? I don't know. What was, what was his, <laughs> what, what was the big thing? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, should we jump into these into these minutes? We've yes. sort of moved toward them already, so we'll just start out by mentioning that it's the same it's the same gun barrel as 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 Doctor No. It's still Bob Simmons uh, walking and turning and, and firing. But I guess that's that's about it for him. He turns out not being the the stunt coordinator on this movie. Terrence Young says he shows up in the back seat, bound and gagged in one of the Bulgars' cars. But I think that's all the Bob Simmons we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we move into this this amazing pre-title sequence mm, mm. have yeah. you been to those gardens have you walked those gardens at pinewood uh i got married in those park gardens at pinewood get which... out really yeah no i should have <laughs> should have put that on my press release um i genuinely did yeah i've got i'll send you them i've got my wedding i've got wedding photos on the bridge um because it was bond um yeah we got married at pinewood studios and we got married at spectre island because that's where they, they like, used to hold the weddings so um yeah, from Russia. Wow. Yeah, that's um, amazing, Mark. And they haven't changed those statues. I think the Griffins may not be there, but the statue at the end of the garden is still there. Um, yeah, I've yeah we got well we we got married at Pyramid for a few reasons. One is a uh, massive Bond fan, obviously, but also my father-in-law, uh, bless him, he's no longer with us, but he was a studio carpenter and spent a lot of time at all the British studios. And I thought there's a poetry here, and then. We thought, I'm not spending a year going to all these boring hotels look to see if, if they can be any good for wedding. Let's let's see if Pinewood could, can hold a wedding. And it turned out they could. It didn't cost that much more than any anywhere else that was really not interesting. So we kind of, it was a no-brainer. Uh, and yeah, our photos were taken in the garden. We had a beautiful day. Um, so yeah, so I have been there. Yes, to answer you, yes. And it's got a great history itself, the whole... Heatherton Hall was there before Pinewood. Uh, Pinewood opened September 1936, um, September the 30th, actually, which I don't even know because it's my birthday. And um, Heatherton Hall was there in the 20s. In fact, the Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty was signed there in the bar in 1921. The peace treaty that 100 years later is still a precarious um, piece of paper. Um, and yeah, the, the building's very different now. It's they've cleaned it up because I think around the sort of 60s it was getting a bit grubby and dirty. So it's it's not as dark as it used to be. At, at one point in time, about 12 years ago, it was I'm sure it was pink. I went there and was like, is it is Spectre Island House pink? Um, but they've they've done it up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So uh, yeah. That's um, so I, we do walk around the gardens and we have two things in mind: one where the photographers put us, and also Connery and Robert Shaw and John Kitteringham, the actor that's that's sort of the uh, fake Connery in this film. And I'm going to give you, a, you probably know the answer as soon as I say the question, but there's a great trivia question around this sequence. And it is, who is the first actor to come back in a Bond film and play a different role? Well, I have to guess it's the guy who's, who's dead, right? No, it's Sean Connery. Sean Connery is not playing <laughs> James Bond here. He's okay. he's yeah, playing right. this this Spectre agent who's well obviously he wasn't a very good Spectre agent because he was like the uh, the gladiator fodder for uh, Red Grant. But yeah, so um so that's that's your one for the pub quiz next well time. Well done. Well, his his face is really is there's something uncanny about his face. And Terrence Young did say he was wearing some kind of minor makeup treatment yes to make him look just a little weird and i that's he does so here's your first you watching this the first time seeing but i guess you said you missed the pre-title sequence so i guess the first time you saw from russia with love you didn't see the fake sean connery but you're so. right he's almost uh, you're, i've always thought that and now it's almost like that deep fake thing where it's just slightly airbrushed it's just and, and they were right to do that because as soon as we watched it again it's like well that's basically like lately sean connery and I read recently, I don't know how true it is, but John Kitteringham, who's the British actor that um, is is the the one under the mask, was also a double uh, camera double for Terence Stamp in the Superman movies. So I'm like, mm. God, you nearly played Zod and Bond, both at Pondwood as well. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was crazy for years. I've watched this, and especially the most recently I watched this uh, from Russia with Love in 4K, so it's like super high definition. Yeah. And I, th- I thought, is this one of those times where I think I'm seeing something and, and nobody else does? And I really was thinking, he just looks slightly pasty. There's a little bit of the 
shadows in his cheeks. I guess they're dimples. They're just like these long gaps in his cheek. I don't know what you call them. Are darker than usual. And his eyebrows aren't right. There's something about his eyebrows too. But I also think Connery is playing he's, Bond differently he's, here. He's panicking. He's he's way too wide-eyed for Bond, right? And way too jumpy. Yeah, he's panicking. And, I mean, uh, Robert Shaw is lit, you know, uh, what was it 12, 13 years before Amity Island and Jaws? You've got Red Grant like a shark. He just senses where the blood is in the, you know, the, in the gardens, and he's not even breaking a sweat as he descends those steps. Even the way he brings his gun up and fires is very unbond. You know, he's got mm. one arm, one arm crooked across the the gun arm, and it as if it, the gun was going to kick or something, and it just doesn't. He never fires a gun like that again in a in a Bond film. Mm, and I'm just looking at. It's, Looking over it now, I've just got it on mute. And Robert Shaw is so such a chilling bastard in this. Excuse my French. He's he's so in charge. And also, Robert Shaw was like the next generation. So was Connery. But we we're trying to get away from this war movie thing. So you've got uh, Robert Shaw, who was part of the you know the new generation, along with the Terence Stamps and Michael Caines and Alan Bates. Doesn't Shaw do an intentional like he's? It's really dark. Even on 4K, I had a hard time, but doesn't he break the stick on purpose? He breaks the stick on purpose? Or am I imagining that? To get Connery to turn around the first time? Oh, okay. It's not, a, yeah, it's not it, an accidental stick step like Han Solo in Return of the Jedi or something. It's uh, Yeah, it's Wilf. The, yeah, the, the whole image. Is, I yeah. mean, they've really cranked down the lights um, very much. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this the bridge has been in so many films. I, and so has the gardens. I saw them recently in um, Rocketman, the Elton John biopic. Because I went, that's not a rehab center. That's that's where we got married. That's that's from Russia, <laughs> Spectre Island. And uh, there's a weird thing. So Jamie uh, Jamie Bell, who plays Bernie Taupin, and he sort of leaves Elton and walks away. And I'm like, he's going to the bit where Robert Shaw kills Sean Connery. And there's no entrance. There's no exit there either. It's like, <laughs> but if you've been there, you don't know the lay of the uh, land. But this, yeah, this, that statue where she's sort of gripping her midriff or keeping her decency. That's I'm sure that's still there. I, I think we saw it. Not that long ago. I wonder if those gardens are also in the montage of Honor Majesty's Secret Service during We Have All the Time in the World. They're walking through these gardens with sculptures and flowers, and I wonder if that's the same garden. That's from a different angle. not. Good point. It's not. It's not. It's not, um, not uh, Heatherton Gardens or Pinewood Gardens. That possibly is in uh, uh, Portugal, but I will. Yeah, I now need to know an answer to that. But it's the gardens have been in everything. When we were last there, they just finished filming Mary Poppins' The Revenge or Returns, whatever it was called. <laughs> and, oh, I wish yeah. it would have been The Revenge. Oh, yeah, that movie. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. And we were like, we because we, we would go back and have you know, pre-COVID times, we'd go back and just have lunch and just hang out and you know not not really walk onto sets, but but walk onto sets and. Um, uh, the gardens were annihilated. It looked like they'd filmed 1917 there. It was like, oh my god, what have they done to the gardens? But it was all the end. The end scene of Mary Poppins 2 has um, a, everyone's holding on balloons and floating. I think they had all these actors on cranes, and the cranes just destroyed the gardens. But but they're kind of they're, they're part of the studio lot. They're, they're used to being you know churned up, renovated, put back together. There's so many shows. I mean, I don't know if you've ever you might have heard of the great. British Bake Off, which is like a cookery, cooking, baking show over here. Um, well, at the moment, it's all filmed in the very same pieces of garden that this beginning of From Russia of Love takes place in. Because um, I went to Roger Moore's memorial. Again, that was held at the same house and location. And all these contestants, basically there's a swap. Uh, Joan Collins and Stephanie Powers, who it turned out were big Bake Off fans, said, can we come and see you do Bake Off if you come and see the Roger Moore things going on? So it was like this weird, and there was a wall as well. So it was like a, sort of like a sort of Berlin Wall, Cold War prisoner transfer where Joan Collins would go and watch some of the Bake Off being filmed whilst uh, Bake Off contestants would come into the garden. But yeah, it's it's used it's used for so much. And also more Bond as well. It was um, famously uh, Octopussy, the ambassador's residence there. That's the gardens. Uh, well, there's not enough shot there around the, pool um yeah it's it's a big location i, I bugsy malone great gatsby lots of stuff is, is shot there and goldfinger as well goldfinger where bond is uh getting together with pussy galore at the very end of the film that is also where 
more or less where Connery gets, uh, well, uh, John Ketteringham gets strangled at the beginning of From Usher's Love. Well, I have a question about the internal logic of this. So are we to assume as we get to know Red Grant better that there's something particularly activated in him knowing what his prey looks like versus, I mean, I know it's just, you know, show business, it's a great idea, let's kill off Bond and tr trick the audience, but is there something psychologically going on here that, like, he's he's a better killer if he can see what his intended prey oh, looks abs like? Oh, absolutely, and and whilst we're not used to new Bonds and you know, other fellows coming in just yet on the second movie, there's almost this suggestion he's just killed Bond and is taking over his, you know, his mantle, you know, I, I've it's not just showing the, the nastiness of Robert Shaw or Red Bron. It's the, um, I mean, he's it, it, almost better looking than Connery, dare I say it. Although he he does that Robert Mitchum breathing in chest thing later, uh, which which Connery <laughs> didn't do for until maybe Diamonds Are Forever, or a little bit of The Only of Twice. I have a Red Grant personal history fact, which we will be referring to off and on throughout this, uh, and from the book because I just thought this was really interesting. There's a big section about his his training, how he becomes this killer for Smirsh. And he had a lot of trouble with some of the propaganda and the politics. But then there's this bit about how he excelled. And I just want to read this because it's pretty funny. He was quick to understand the rudiments of codes and ciphers because he wanted to understand them. He was good at communications and immediately grasped the maze of contact cutouts, couriers, and post boxes. And he got excellent marks for field work in which each student had to plan and operate dummy assignments in the suburbs and countryside around Leningrad. Finally, when it came to tests of vigilance, discretion, safety first, presence of mind, courage, and coolness, he got top marks from the whole school. And I just think about Red Grant and safety first. Safety and that just first. is so bizarre to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you make him sound like, it sounds like Pete Buttigieg is like, no, he's not, he's, he can't be too much of a Boy Scout. Yeah, that's, well, I think Robert Shaw's pins that out. I love the blondness of him here as well in the sequence. He, it's real striking. Yes, it's a bit of a bottle blonde, but um, yeah. yeah I, I didn't want to do it, apparently. Right, he, okay. He initially said, I'm not going to do the part if I have to blonde my hair, and then I guess they said, well, sorry. And then he called back a couple days later and said, okay. Well, I can imagine one of the reasons, first off, is that fight on the Orient Express. You need to know who's who in that sequence, and if they've both got the same coloured hair, yeah, it's going to become a bit of a a mix of everyone so it's a nice sort of divider and they, they i wouldn't say they've referenced it later but when max orin crops up and uh javier bardem comes into the sky for that i always think there's a little red grant blonde vibe going on i wanted to ask what do you guys so we both we've all seen this sequence many times your mind goes into different directions if, if you've seen a movie a lot of times you're not usually lost in the moment and you start to think about it and scrutinize it a little bit as far as its logic uh story logic what do you guys when you watch this what do you think is happening here besides i mean obviously what's happening is red grant's training and and performing for this audience and apparently under a certain amount of time he wants to get a certain time in where he kills him who is this guy he kills though do you guys is he a prisoner that they just use as fodder is this guy a low-level agent doesn't he know he's going to die? I, mean, I always wonder exactly what's happening here. And wouldn't it be better, the second level to the question, wouldn't it be better if we did, wouldn't have gotten the time, one minute and 52 seconds, wouldn't it have been better to just imagine this might have been the end of a longer stalking sequence or something? Because it's a little bit silly to think they just go out in the garden and walk around until he gets killed. Oh, I uh, it's, no, I like the stopwatch. I like that because it's okay. it's basically... That we're being told that the villains, and we kind of assume they're a bit spectery, that they will literally kill someone, you know, to train someone else. I, I think that adds to the sadism. It adds to the menace. And I, I think it's it's slick as well. It's there's a, a shorthand to it, you know, whatever uh, could do better next time. It's because then there's the fear that oh he 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 has to do better or he wants to. So the next time he's you know it's it's basically presenting a threat to Connery. Uh, and that's quite brave as well, because we've had Connery being, you know, Dr. No, slightly all-invincible international jet setter on the beaches of Jamaica. And then here we've got, we've, we're actually presented with his his threat before we see Connery officially. And that's, I like it when Bond films do that. They start Live and Let Die in the same way, where we see the threat is there beforehand. And possibly, you know, I think future Bond films, imminent Bond films could be playing with the same 
ruse. And, and also, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have, I currently have a moustache, but in sort of British cinema, a guy with a moustache is, particularly in that era, was they weren't the Chris Pratts or Chris Hemsworth. They were often like the geography teachers no one listened to. So the idea he's got a moustache when they peel off the mask, um, or my memory says he has, uh, he is sort of, it's, it's saying he's a weakling. It's saying he, he couldn't cut it. Um, I think that's also what's going on there. So the, this is, so he certainly then, you, you, Mark, said, used the word gladiatorial earlier. We're thinking this is from a, corral of guys that they've got he's got to be right of, of low-level guys that hey you're dead anyway if you can get out of this somehow maybe you got a chance to fight another day but this is really the only choice he has right put on this mask and go out in the garden and and that's it i mean i only bring this up because well the nature of the show is to scrutinize these things yeah absolutely no i I, actually... I like it too just to be clear i like it i love it there's no i'm not complaining i'm saying when you think about it, though, for a minute, it is just a little silly, sillier that it's a minute and 52 seconds than it would have been maybe a longer. Uh, but it works for the movie in all the ways you just said. Better I'm than not... being chased with a flamethrower, which is going to happen a little later. <laughs> like, you get your choice. You can go into the garden at night and have it out with Red Grant, or we're going to chase you with a flamethrower. I don't know. But there's, I yeah. think there's another vibe of, I mean, he doesn't stab him. He doesn't shoot him. He strangles him with almost like, well, it's sort of piano wire, this thin wire. It, this, that's dark. That is dark. And I think that what we often forget is the Bond films really set a dark template. Yes, Goldfinger came along with shiny, silvery, hip 60s pop art template, and rightly so. But there's the sadism of Bond, the darkness of Bond is all there in this, you know, two minute. Uh, overture i i feel and I, i've got this great vision now you've put this idea in my head of i can see lottie lenya there's a, almost like a cellar room where everyone's chained go you no no you you didn't <laughs> yeah. eat you didn't eat your lunch you're next no but i was told i would <laughs> i would fight the lady and maybe have a chop no get out now get out. um yeah i, th I feel that much <laughs> we well and the, even this accelerated slightly accelerated garroting is shocking i mean it's more mm. violent by doing that and it really i think it probably at the time was really shocking to it yeah and it's it reminds me of hitchcock but actually later hitchcock and uh, frenzy hitchcock's uh, film about the necktie murderer from 72 that was sh again sorry to keep doing this but it, it was shot in the same gardens there's a scene where uh, the characters of frenzy have a lunch break and it's again the set you can always see the, the pinewood hedges and there's this nasty you know as i say sadist uh, sadistic hitchcock vibe of strangulation you know it's it's kind of grim and it, it, again it just sets up the villains you know bond a bond film is often only really as good as its villain so if you set them up if you get their tone right then you're off to the races yeah i think that's true and fleming himself spent 70 pages or something in before bond even shows up in the book just mm. taking time with all of those villains it's mm. the latest interest latest entrance of james bond into a book yeah because bond uh, of any of them bond particular screen is such this internal character this internal cipher so you need the villains to be external and you know there's nothing more external than putting a wire around someone's neck and pulling tights um at 12 in the you know midday and then pretending it's nighttime which is a great trick of cinema as well we should say something about that first john barry sting mm. which which is that sting and the cellos underneath it is better than the entire Monty Norman score of music in Dr. No. I mean, I, it just lights the movie up. I totally, I totally agree. And it, uh, yeah, absolutely. And also mixed with those, I don't know what those birds are. It's almost like, was it owls or bats or I don't know, guinea fowl or something. There's these, there's a little, the first sound you hear is that is a sort of bird distant bit of wildlife. And I've always found that, odd as well yeah. and, and you know sound effects in films are never accidental as well so I, I watched a great film recently that used sound instead of a score and it wasn't until we were right at the end that we realized there's no score to this film um and that's what they did but i, I agree the john barry i actually i i, I wrote it here I'm, i had a note here um i'm not gonna read it out because i think that's, that's terrible of an author to read out their own stuff um but but Actually, I will. It's I, not It's not the James Bond theme over the gun barrel motif that slaps the audience to attention. It's the opening crashes of the From Russia of Love theme tune, fired like a machine gun at the audience, before Barry then serves up a sensuous look that don't touch. 
atmosphere to Robert Jones, uh, Robert Brown John's titles. And I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a big John Barry fan. I think, I think we all are. Uh, and I, I, I love what Monty Norman did. He created a soundtrack album rather than a soundtrack. I feel. Um, and John Barry created a score. Uh, and he's trying it out here. I think he really finds his feet in Goldfinger, but he's, he's trying it out here, bringing in the, the strings and the guitars. And later on, those Istanbul guitars and lutes. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing. I remember reading an old interview years and years ago about uh, Steven Spielberg when he was, you know, I think it was right after Jaws or Close Encounters, and, and he's, somebody's interviewing him in his office, and he's like, I'm going to put on my thinking music. And he has all this John Barry music that he listens to. So Spielberg was this huge John Barry fan as well, as we all are. I, mean, I just, I love, I love John Barry. I've seen a few films. I remember seeing The Iron Lady. Uh, I saw a working cut of it. I was part of a test audience. Um, and I started to bad mouth it not realizing the director was sat next to me which was a lovely moment um but they were using john barry and thomas newman stuff i, I, I you know line in winter and other scores just to create a sense of heraldry you know they hadn't done the score yet um I, it's curious that a lot of i use john barry when i work a lot just just i like the background and i like i like that sound and i you know we we played we made sure john barry was played on a violin at our wedding in the room that all the Spectre agents are stood alongside when the lights go up. God, this makes me want to ask, uh, Mark. I, I, I've asked this of a few people. What's your favorite Bond score? What's the record you're going to put on first if you are if you have your preference? Um, I really... I'm, this is controversial and you'll probably... There'll literally be sort of radio silence. My favorite Bond film is A View to Kill. It's not the best. But I have a very different best. But my favorite is A View to Kill for lots of personal grandfather cubby time reasons. You know, I was nine and that's a great age to be a Bond fan um, in the 80s. Uh, and so to answer you, I'd say A View to Kill. Uh, I just love the, the energy of the, uh, the sort of Honor Majesty's Secret Service since and the pace of that. But it's more the elegiac autumnal tone, which I think really suits Roger Moore's autumnal years at the time. Uh, and I love the score for Octopussy for the same reasons. Um, but then I, I, I can have fast bond or slow bond. I, I tend to like the slow Barry stuff. Um, it's I prefer that a lot more. But a view to kill would be my. I, I wouldn't say it's the best score, but it is my favorite. It's a good score. Yeah, mm. no argument here. That's mm. a, it's very and good. from Rush with Love as well. Um, I was listening to the score not that long ago, and it's some beautiful little bits to it. Just where you know the um, Istanbul scenes and the Turkish. That sort of oral colouring that he puts in with the different uh, percussions, and I, I think it's a beautiful score. Um, it's Barry also doesn't always. I'm just going to say this. Hope I'm right. He doesn't always reflect where Bond is. Yes, there'll be some sort of Tokyo uh, percussion right. in You Only Live Twice, but he doesn't. All, you know, we don't hear America or France particularly. You know, he's not doing sort of. Uh, bad French uh, sounding accordion music in A View to a Kill um, but he really does in uh, From Rush of Love he really gets the, the um, where we're at at the time he, goes, like, really, he yeah. goes pretty Vegas in Diamonds Are Forever as well that's another yeah. one where he's definitely yeah. in the space um, you know in the theme song mm. as I was listening to it just today there's this one instrument and I don't know whether it's an electric harpsichord mm. But it's, it's it does organ. this little. Is it is it an organ? This little dun, yeah, dun, 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 the syncopation yeah. thing. It's really gives it this beautiful airy quality. Mm. Mm, no, you're right. It's, it's got that like staccato kind of. Yeah, yeah. I believe. Oh, go ahead, Mark. No, no, no. No, go for it. I was going to say I believe that it's only it can only be heard on the film's soundtrack as well. It did not make it onto the record. As I understand, I would have to listen to it. I looked for the original soundtrack recording version of this, and I couldn't find it on Spotify or anywhere. I found different different people's, like a great Count Basie version and so on, but couldn't find that. But I had read somewhere that that organ track only got into the movie and did not make it onto the soundtrack record so it's kind of hard to find outside of the actually watching the film that's probably why i noticed it when i was watching the movie because i listen to that soundtrack all the time and i don't yeah. i'm not conscious of it being in the soundtrack album oh a lot of the albums even to this day have very different versions so like, that's not the version that i want to hear but yeah you're right it's i, I, I it's I, I presume this happened in America a lot. We we have we used to have a tradition in British cinemas where we'd have the Wurlitzer player, the the organist, uh, at the front of the screen, uh, and they keep one or two in London. There's um, Leicester Square has got this beautiful Wurlitzer um, organ, and it's almost got that sort of 
overture quality to it uh as what whilst we're seeing all these sort of naked flesh and you know uh glimpses of um turkish women doing uh belly dancing uh i yeah i i, I like the harpsichord i know exactly what you mean it's it's almost coney island almost but it's not as well I was doing some research on those titles, and uh, apparently, I can't get a straight answer on on for sure. But either David Watkins, you know, who shot Three and Four Musketeers and um, The Devils, he's listed in one source as being who operated, who actually shot the stuff for for Brown John, and then somebody else uh, has Frank Tidy listed. Uh, I think Frank Tidy told told somebody that that he were, he did that. So Frank Tidy did the Gray Fox and the Duelists. So these are two amazing cinematographers, and the notion that these guys were just operating the camera while they shot projected slides onto a belly dancer or two, which may, one source says it's the same woman who does the belly dancing in the gypsy camp, and then there's another source that says there was an, another woman who did it. So this is... I like to think it's her from Beirut in Man with the Golden Gun. This, was, this, yeah, this, exactly. this is how her and Bond knew each other. <laughs> I can't other. see the bullet in her navel. Yeah, they should have... Yeah, they'll mash that up and we'll have all this weird connect, connective tissue in future future centuries. But I, I've, got, I've got the titles just playing on the loop now. They are... And I know they've been HD'd and cleaned up as they should be, but you, you imagine seeing this at the time? I mean, the Hitchcock had you know great Saul Bass title sequences and it was an era of good titles but the the crispness the precision of the fonts in this and the choice of colors is so advanced even now I'm looking at it going the, you know you've got an orange next to a green it's it's so vibrant and so not bond as well you know, the only thing that's bond about it is later the theme tune kicks in and, and you know the flashes of thigh and uh sort of heaving uh, Turkish cleavages and there's no focus on that slide projector. So it's mm. entirely dependent on her position between the lens and the dancer to whether or not those words are in focus or not. Mm. So there was this really interesting kind of handmade thing that's going on, mm. I'm sure, as they were shooting, which is like, OK, you got to come up, m move towards us one inch, you know, just because we got to be able to read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, um, the, the band Scissor Sisters about 10 plus years ago did a great video for a song called, I think, Land of a Thousand Words or Land of a Thousand Dreams. And they deliberately, everyone said, oh, they've done a Morris Binder type title sequence. Like, no, no, you, it's, it's Brown John that they're aping. So, yeah, look at that when you get a moment. Um, but, yeah, I just, I, just going through the names here as well. There's such, I, I love how Lois Maxwell doesn't get pie billing at this point. It's like, we don't, we don't know yeah, if she's, she's, she's coming back. She's buried in the credits, isn't she? Yeah, and Eunice Gason, that, this is her last spin of the dice. But, Martin Beswick's first name is misspelled. Yeah. So again, more more trouble with titles because Sid Kane got left off of the titles for Doctor No. And it's a real skill. A friend of mine, Alan, he was Alan. He was uh, Morris Binder's assistant on the Dalton films, and you know, he he's told us lots of stories, some repeatable, some not, and they're all brilliant and fascinating. <laughs> and the sort of makeshift sellotape scissors, uh, wing and a prayer way that the title sequences were put together. I, is is you know is a documentary film in itself but he they always had a problem with the women keeping still so when you see like it says here peter uh, edited by peter hunt and it's on a lady's hand that is not easy to do because the camera is so focused the lens is so on that millimeter you know that millimeter of space and if if she moves or drops her hand the whole thing's ruined and they often would have problems because they would get uh they would get women who were more used to doing glamour shoots so perhaps uh you know less pg rated um work and they were not actresses and it was often very hard just to get them to stay still so when you see this it's like oh my god the effort they must have done the, the outtakes I'd, I'd love to see the outtakes of all the title sequences yeah that would be great yeah yeah of, of everyone just having fun with it and, and off uh, or i'll give you one it's not really a spoiler but it will ruin it um, my, my friend alan i think it's, it's well it's either license to kill or living daylights uh, there's the velvet gloved hand that's Alan's hand because they just the actress just couldn't do it. Just would it, she was just hitting her marks wrong every time, and time was always running out on Morris Binder's title sequences. So they just Alan just put on the glove and shot it himself. And that, there's more more moments like that in Bond titles. Yeah, they, the waiting for Binder is legendary toward the end of the career. I guess that was always the last thing that they got, and they wondered when he was going to deliver and what he was going to deliver, and everybody just sort of trusted him and wasn't sure what he was going to come up with. I sometimes wonder whether there's even some stuff that gets recycled 
uh, there's a oh that race he did, he did the titles for that Mike Hammer TV series with Stacy Keach, and there's some shots in there that look suspiciously like they may have been borrowed from a different title shoot. Oh, the Roger Moore, some of the Roger Moores in *A View to Kills* titles are, I feel, a *Spy Who Loved Me* uh, era. They're, they're Roger's a little young, you know, just slightly younger in the jowls and the silhouette. Oh yeah, I mean, everyone recycles, but they they certainly had to. And also, I think. What allegedly happened with Morris Binder when he was doing his titles, he would get, right, this is the amount of film we have left. This is what you can shoot. But once we're over, that's it, gone. So his, he had to use a different, you know, very different creativity. But that is not, I, I, I'm not quite sure what the case is with, with uh, Danny Kleinman and Rattling Stick, who now viewed the titles. But, and they're digitized, so there must be greater freedoms to a degree. Um but yeah, I, I I find the titles. I mean, we all know this, but they're they're pieces of pop art. And this Robert Brown John stuff is, whilst he only did this in Goldfinger, his that stamp is there. You know, later on in so many Bond films, the, you know, just the, even in my book and the idea of hands and shoulders. You know, and then you see it, it goes full circle when Daniel Craig is showing, you know, his topless in the Spectre titles. And he's being surrounded by the hands. They sort of flip it on its head nicely in that one. We should mention that with the screenplay credit, the guy that doesn't get credited is Berkeley Mather. And yet he contributed so much to to the all of the first three, actually. He did uncredited work on, on Dr. No and on Goldfinger as well. But he's who came up with the whole idea of, of weaving Red Grant through the entire plot and ultimately having him be this kind of guardian angel for Bond because apparently in Maybaum's draft it was just he was in the first scene and he was and then he showed up on the train in time to fight. So there's there are a lot of contributions I guess that he made to the script and it's always interesting the the ones who don't get credit and yet they they contribute so much to the project. Oh absolutely. I mean any film has a lot of fingerprints on it that don't get credited and and especially Bond not every time but like I say uh, uh Tom Mankiewicz he was he was there offering advice and sort of sideline thoughts and observations for for Bond way beyond uh, his last credit, which uh, would be Man with the Golden Gun in 74. Yeah, there's a lot of, even now, there's a lot of writers. And, well, full play to, a fair play to Mr. Mather then for bringing that in. Again, it's about the tone. There's the, if I would say that if um, Goldfinger is the production template, you know, the physicality of the Ken Adams sets and the car and the sense of movement and sexuality and the women... If that's the the production template, then I think that from Russia with Love is the is the template of tone and the, the sense of what the atmosphere will be for each of these films or what it can be, um, and, and nothing personifies that more than the, you know the opening overture. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's as if they're the the first two movies are the are the two goalposts and Goldfinger then kicks right through the middle of it and it's it's like the the three movie pilot for the whole series oh that's nice i almost in britain we always jumpers for goalposts where we put our sweatshirts and make um, well i didn't i'm not a football person but um i like that yeah two goalposts that goldfinger became the, the ball for yeah so what does that make for much uh thunderbolt i don't know the <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the tie break that. playoff now i don't know <laughs> yeah d- d- uh, yes the sudden death Overtime, yeah, playoff, yeah, that's what it is. And then, yes, and you only have twice a place for those yeah. in the world. It, you only have twice as the international tournament. No, no, I'm seeing a whole. This is a new book. This is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing that I was just going to mention about these titles was I just you know it's I think it's interesting that we've got a a, a, a what would become a well known song presented without the lyrics mm. in the front titles, and I think you know that's interesting. This and on Her Majesty's Secret Service, there aren't many that don't have mm. lyrics. And not, well, they all have the Bond theme beats, you know, No Time to Die, you can hear it there, not just the twangy uh, Johnny Marr guitars, but you can hear the Bond theme throughout No Time to Die. But in Doctor No and From Rush With Love, they kind of segue into the theme. And uh, it's, it's, I, yeah, I wasn't around in 1963, but I imagine that that theme was really important to say, you like the last one? Well, he's back. We got more. So they um they sort of have two two tunes in there at once. But yeah, you're right. Matt Monroe gets sidelined to the end moment. But that kind of makes sense. That's there's a sort of Venice romanticism to how it ended. So this brings us to the chess match between Czechoslovakia and Canada. Canada is not looking 
too good. Canada looks like Arthur C. Clarke, actually. Well, then he should win. <laughs> Shouldn't he? Probably, yeah. I would imagine. You know, I watched all of The Queen's Gambit, mm. and I even read the book, and I so I thought I was a chess expert. But what is 11 and a half to 11 and a half? What does that mean? I could not find anything. I kept Google searching. I was like, why does it say 11 and a half and 11 and a half under each one of them? We're such Bond, Any ideas? We're such Bond fans. I too watched The Queen's Gambit and just couldn't. <laughs> I was just like, now I'll maybe understand the beginning of From Rush of Love. And I still don't understand chess, uh, but I know it looks great. And um, fair, top marks to Ken Adams' set here as well. It's, it's one of his lesser remembered sets um i i think it's sid kane i got we gotta we gotta gotta give sid kane credit oh of course of course it is yes i I, I just see wide ceilings and think adam but yes but that beautiful mat on the top of it the ceiling like everything from above the chest set is just that beautiful painting and it looks gorgeous it looks like hitchcock it reminds me of of you know bob burks's production design in in hitchcock films Mm, mm, but yeah i still don't know also funny funny we'd say the queen's gambler uh sorry Apologies for the Ken Adam faux pas there, but he, Ken Adam was a massive influence on the set design of, of, of the Queen's Gambit, so much so that they, they named a hotel in the thing after him. I found this out recently. I was oh, doing, wow. doing a Ken Adam oh, thing. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Because I was That's looking amazing. at it going, these are really Ken Adam sets, even like her house, you know, that sort of uh, almost Judy Jetson's late 60s house she sets up when her mother dies. Uh, spoiler. Um, and, uh, I, and then it turns out it was all most of um queen's gambit was shot in berlin so it's got all this cold war architecture um sorry i'm just going off the queen's gambit certainly certainly the last episode in the russian that insane russian set where they're playing the final tournament that's very ken adams it's like big time villain's lair almost not you know it's not meant to look like a villain's lair but it just gives you that sense of we're going big ken adams for the last ken adam for the last uh episode here i could see that i didn't i'll be honest i didn't think about it the whole time i was watching it but now that you say it yeah definitely yeah, definitely see it. and i'm just looking at this chess room the wide shot on it i mean that i love a matte painting i would I've, i want to do some matte work and get a glass and i love how that old artistry of cinema that they've they've sort of created that ceiling space though sid kane has in this baroque like you say is sort of with the the gaudy gold table as well i think there's something interesting about that i think this contrast between the new, you know new world old world thing that goes on we've got all of that ken adam design and dr no mm-hmm. peppered with the antiques you know littered out through it and then this movie is so old world and it's it almost gives the movies permission to move between those two spaces. And mm. so I'm really I really appreciate this design and then I'm so grateful for Goldfinger when we get there because then we're back to that modernity and it's just I I, I again I just love the fact that there's these templates that are being created. Mm. But then uh, uh, Ken Adam would bring in maybe maybe with a little bit of Sid Kane's inspiration although Ken Adam sets were doing it themselves at that time particularly um The Trials of Oscar Wilde which is a great uh, cubby free Doctor No film. But you in Thunderball, you, where the MI6 agents are meeting, is this, again, it's this big, I, I don't know if Baroque is the right phrase, but these sort of, you know, oil painting uh, grandeur that is so out of this time. And then he does it again. There's a lot of oil paintings in Spy Who Loved Me and Stromberg's uh, Stronghold there. Um, but yeah, yeah and it must, maybe it starts here. Because you're right, Ken Adam gets confused often mistaken for a lot of maternity and those heavy metals you know those dark woods but no he was highly aware of other arts you know he got he got the oscar for barry Lyndon and um madness of king george you know which are very sort of period non-contemporary films so we've got kronstein here which is played by vladek shabel who i think about him from red dawn uh and women in love and so he was he would have a, an amazing career as a character actor after this film mm, mm. but there's no doubt that he's going to win <laughs> even before he gets the glass of water with the engraved right. doily under it yeah he has okay. it's almost a, a putin arrogance about him so sort of forward forward link it well and then we find out he was just toying with them because he was he had some eight move strategy to to um made him that he could change get, when prompted to a one move win right mm, mm. so because clearly he was stretching this out if not then it's kind of boring that concept that he gets the note and then changes the 
you know, and then immediately wins the game. I don't want to think that he was already about to immediately win the game. I want to think that he was toying with them. And he gets this message and says, oh, I better make this move then where I can end the game immediately because I'm needed at once, as the note says. I'm going to say, though, and I might be all alone on this, um, I don't like the note. I actually think that it was a missed opportunity here to be a little more mysterious and to uh, introduce an idea in a clearer way. It should have just, when he tilts that up, it should have just been the Spectre logo right in the middle mm -hmm. of his class. Because mm -hmm. all he needs is that logo to tell him he's needed it once. Actually having the text is, I don't know, it's, it's not as clean and it's not as mysterious and interesting to me. Possibly. I can almost hear Lottie Lenya saying it, though, like, impatient. I, I, I don't care about symbols and bat, bat signs. I need you here at once. <laughs> I, I, maybe it was a bit more of uh, her impatience. Um, yeah, still don't understand chess. I'd, I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> there's a great chess motif in the Quantum of Solace. They bring it back a little bit with the black and white to the point where uh, Jim Otten is left covered in oil and looks like a sort of broken chess piece i always felt and in that white hotel there's there's a, uh, and also with the tosca scene with the white corridors and the black tuxedos there's a real white and black uh gameplay going on um ag again i doubt it's unintentional yeah and the fact that we've got in this set three chess boards is pretty amazing the one on the wall the one on the floor and the one that they're playing on it's just very clever and it just sort of it just seems seems right mm. Mm. so about that uh, coaster with the specter symbol and the message on it so how exactly does that get to him is that a has, has one of our specter guys killed the waiter and then taken the glass and put the thing on or how i just wonder how that exactly or the waiter <laughs> just took took a bribe to take a bribe take get, this in yeah because to be honest he's not none of this is very uh very cloak and dagger really they're really obviously something going on here there's way too long of a beat there where he's looking up at the waiter and he's holding it down uh holding the glass and like everybody in the room's gonna know that that's weird but i think the, uh, the real waiter is stuck in the never say never again cupboard clutching yeah. something that he's told if you move this this will go off i think that's i think, that, that, I think and, you oh got yeah it. there you yeah. go you nailed you it go. yeah that's it yeah that's it. and then that waiter disappears later that day still because they can't have him telling anyone that that uh, I do I do want to say that in 2021 the way he the way he drinks that glass the way he picks it up with like it was pretty suspicious back then but now we're like why is he drinking that like Donald Trump oh the Donald Trump two-handed drink <laughs> oh the... it's, it's a total Trump move he just makes it's, it's like uh, Shebel doesn't quite know where the camera is so he's just he's giving it all options like one of those sort of 1970s soap operas where you've got to hold something to camera to make a story point yeah it does feel, or like holding like a holding a hamburger in a commercial like you got to make sure you can see the back but they <laughs> they weird. i don't know if it's intentional but they do this weird thing with specter throughout particularly in the early beats of specter and the conneries of just portraying them as other as just a bit weird not just sadistic and killing people but they're just a little bit strange and a little bit kooky uh, and that's where i think the the, the mystery and it comes it's you know it's coming off of second world war and the sense of in, you know european villains and all of that and shable is so good here he comes back in um as the chief's assistant in uh the uh, 67 casino royale and like you say yes he crops up in loads of ken russell films um i think he sort of died a bit young but i kind of wish he'd, he'd done more bond films he does seem perfect for, for them. I think that's interesting about all three of the, our Spectre people over the course of this movie. They're all not only ruthless, but in many places they're terrified. Mm. And mm. they're all walking this amazing tightrope. I guess, you know, maybe Walter Cotell is the less least uh, fearful of them, but even he seems to be a little nervous on a couple of instances. Uh, he's a little afraid of Rosa Klebb. Mm. So they're all afraid of each other. They're all afraid of Blofeld. They're all, on one hand, really confident. And it, 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 I think you're, you, you're right, Mark. I mean, it makes them all kind of kooky, which is good. Yeah, 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 that, that, absolutely. And also with the chess stuff as well. Chess, chess was a real, I mean, I kind of picked this up going back to Queen's Gambit again, which you must have watched. It's not long and it's brilliant. Uh, but it, it, we forget that what chess represented to the Cold War at this time as well, that it was real. This was slightly before the space race had really kicked in. So it was very important that, you know, uh, the Russians and Americans or the Russians and the, the West were beating each other at 
very global, televised, important cultural events like a chess game in you know, Venice. And, and this could have just as easily have been you know, Russia versus the U.S. or something. And so, again, it's Eon saying, no, we're not going to embrace that directly. We're going to we're going to have surrogates and stand ins. So mm -hmm. instead, it's Czechoslovakia versus Canada. Yeah. Cousins, cousins duking it out. Yeah, it's 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 Pierre Trudeau in the wings. <laughs> um, he, <laughs> he hands over the uh, trophy. Well, that sort of brings us to the end of these minutes, unless you've got anything else, Mark. No, I, apart from I just I'm looking again at it. I just loving all the the fact you've got these sort of Jack Lord Kennedy era gray suit suited guys in the audience watching the chess match, and they've all got the sunglasses on. <laughs> I mean, maybe the Pinewood lights were pretty bright, and I suppose it's Venice. It is summer, um, but it's curious that they've got all these little sort of uh, again, it's that late '50s sense of jet set before the '60s kicks in in the next film. But no, it's a great. It's I mean, there's there's kind of two three great opening beats to From Russia with Love. We've got the garden garroting, we've got the titles, and, and I would put this there as well, the, the, just this chess match, and none of it has much dialogue. It's all cinematic, it's all visual, um, which you know sometimes misses from some of the later ones. And I guess they mit mixed and matched these scenes around because in one draft, uh, the titles were supposed to be under the garden assassination, mm -hmm. and then they were gonna go to the Spectre boat and then they were going to come back to the chess match, and so I guess there were there was a lot of um, jockeying to decide what's the proper order mm. to open this movie up. In. Mm. Well, we've already seen the chess game. You know that the what Red Grant and uh, Bond, well, not Bond, are doing in the uh, in the Spectre Island Gardens. There's a sort of chess one-upmanship, you know, going across lines. Yeah. And if you really want to look at it that way, and they're both wearing black, and um, you, you hear a rook. There we go. Look, I've took it full circle there. Oh, that's what it is. That's it's what we're saying it is. That's not what it is. Very that's what good. we're saying. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything you would, uh, any, any, anything you'd like to, I don't know, plug, mention, tell people where to find you or not? Or no, I no. Like please that? don't find me ever. Um, no, I'm out there. I hashtag catching bullets often leads uh, various roads to my Rome. But uh, MarkO'ConnellCo.uk is my main website where I put all my bond shaped happiness um so yeah and also i've uh, got facebook group so yeah i'm out there mark o'connell on all the various social media corridors well thanks so much for taking the time to join no us no worries really great talking to you great well, to meet you i've enjoyed it i've enjoyed it i want to learn chess now we need to learn chess <laughs> i've been trying for so long it's not, not i don't gonna think happen. it's gonna happen for me i'm afraid yeah well that's gonna do it for minutes zero through seven of from russia with love you can find us on twitter at 007 by seven podcast or on our Facebook group, uh, the 007 by 7. Did we give it a name? I'm completely forgetting. We I play around in there. I've forgotten if it has a name. Well, 007 by 7 on Facebook. And um, also, we have our Patreon at uh, alienminute.com forward slash pa uh, Patreon. If you want to come over and listen to some commentaries, or we do uh, random episodes about Bond, about Alien, about whatever we want to talk about cinematically. So come over there. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.